Hey there, Vernacular Faithful. Redcoat here. And Stanter joins him. And we've got another podcast for you. This time, we're tackling the topic of continued player engagement and replayability when it comes to video games. In specific, we'll be looking at what kind of game design leads to players wanting to re-engage with it, and also what kind of design leads to players not wanting to re-engage. We'll start by going over how mechanics affect replayability, and then we'll look into the Narvazod's impact. So, as I said, we're going to first talk about mechanical replayability. This is when the player wants to play your game because of your mechanics. The first step when trying to do this is to make sure you avoid implementing mechanics that inhibit mechanical replayability. This may sound obvious, but it really is very important. There are several different ways that mechanics can inhibit mechanical replayability. To further complicate this, there is some subjectivity about whether or not a given player finds a mechanic to fall into one of these categories. The first of these comes from difficulty. It can be alleviated if the player is able to get enough skill. If a player finds something overwhelmingly frustrating in its difficulty, if the player says, I've beaten this and I never want to do it ever again, then it will take a lot of other actual reasons why the player wants to replay a game to overcome it. Of course, this has less impact if the content is optional. It should be noted that you should keep your eye on difficulty in general, as it can impact not just replayability, but also the player's enjoyment of their first playthrough. The next thing that can cause a player to not be interested in replaying your game are annoying mechanics. These mechanics aren't difficult, but rather add tedium to your game. There are a lot of ways this can occur, and it is very important to test the game with people who haven't played it at all stages of development in order to find these things. Also, listen to your playtesters, especially if you have a dedicated QA department or testing team. While such dedicated teams may be sick of your game by the third month into testing, if not sooner, they can find more than just bugs. Another thing to avoid is what I call slogs. This refers to an event in your game that is needlessly long and tedious. Something that feels more like padding to extend playtime. This can be long areas that slow the player's movement down to a crawl and do nothing to add excitement to that slow movement, or locked content that requires the player to do the same thing over and over again ad nauseum. In RPGs, this can be locations with ridiculously high encounter rates and enemies that are boring or easy to defeat wasting the player's time with each battle start and battle end cinematic that plays. The important bit to note here is the fact that the content in question adds nothing but time to the experience. This is something that can be discovered through testing, but also through asking the question, why is this here? What does it accomplish? Do we really need this to take this long? The slog often arises from needing to meet a quota or misunderstanding just how much aggregate time something takes when the player is doing it many times in succession. It can also come from not realizing just how often any particular action might be taken by the player over the course of normal gameplay in a given scenario or not realizing that a particular requirement to achieve a goal or reach an event is set too high and requires the player to grind more than they should have to to get to it. Finally, we have the concept of the one-trick pony. This is something in the game that lacks variety or depth in its execution such that it really only has one or two ways to be applied to situations. An extreme example of this would be having a beat-em-up game that features only one attack, whose properties don't change, regardless of the situation. Even if there are many enemies in the game with crazy cool abilities for the player to deal with, the player's answer to all these situations is still the same resulting in a repetitively boring experience. This can also appear in situations where the player has many options to choose from, but in reality there is only really one true option that solves every situation. 
This greatly lowers the replayability of the game, as the player is actively encouraged not to experiment in this scenario, removing one of the ways in which players often re-engage their games. A variant of this is when there are many different solutions to specific situations, but they are so specific and the advantages granted are so small, that the time spent gearing out to meet each specific situation becomes too lengthy for players to commit to on a repeated basis especially if there is a generic middle-of-the-road answer in the mix. This can also be inverted such that there are many situations in the game, but each situation only has one solution, and cannot be approached in different creative ways. This works for a one-and-done experience, where the player is expected to put the game down after they have finished it. However, for a game that wishes to be played and replayed, this sort of design ultimately fails to bring the player back. So we've talked a lot about ways to discourage a player from replaying your game, and that is important, but there are also things you can do to increase the likelihood that your players will want to come back to your game time and time again. The first of these is having a lot of mechanical depth. There are some things to focus on here. The first are mechanics that are unique and fun to use. This can sound extremely daunting, but it can be done in a few easier ways. The first is that you don't have to invent an entirely new mechanic, but rather you can tweak an existing mechanic or transplant a mechanic from a different genre. Unique doesn't mean it isn't related, just that it isn't quite the same. Your goal is to create a mechanical experience that is fun and, more importantly, that the player can't quite get anywhere else. The next thing that you can do is recontextualize mechanics by introducing new or different situations. This is really good to do with your mechanics throughout your game. Also, mechanics that encourage experimentation and freedom and that allow for self-expression are good ways of adding depth, provided the player can feel effective when doing so. When mechanics are fun to learn, and the player can enjoy playing your game with a high level of skill, then you know that you've done a good job in this area. As a word of warning, while a certain amount of WOW factor, by which I mean things that make the player exclaim WOW, not World of Warcraft, can make something seem amazing, and often leads to good first impressions, it alone cannot make up for otherwise uninteresting gameplay, and can even harm you once the player becomes used to it if such things are implemented poorly. Flash and pizzazz are no match for solid, deep mechanics in the long run. Another powerful way of increasing replayability is through variety. When you allow the player to experience your game differently each time they play, they're more likely to want to come back to try those different experiences. Having variety can also allow the player to experience your game a different way if they do decide to replay it for other reasons, which also has value. It also allows for more replays before the game begins to feel stale. There are different mechanical ways of implementing variety, and you don't have to try to do all of them at once. As a couple of ideas, you could start the player from a different location in your world, allow them to choose different sets of tools, or to explore your world in different ways. For example, most Pokemon games have you choose one of three different starters. Which starter you choose will often have a large impact on your experience with the first few boss battles, as well as influencing what other Pokemon the player will want on their team. This leads to different experiences depending upon the starter choice. Or consider the Dark Souls games, which have different starting classes with different starting weapons and stat allocations. These immediately lead to different experiences. Also, Dark Souls 1 in particular gives the player a lot of options in what directions they can go in at the start, leading to some variety of navigation. Speaking of which, Super Mario 64 has a ton of choices when it comes to the path the player will take through the game, in both micro and macro senses. In the micro sense, each stage has typically six different stars the player can collect, plus the 100 coin star that rewards thorough exploration. Each star typically only requires the player to navigate a smaller portion of any given level. This allows for an interesting combination of newness and familiarity as the player returns to a level again and again to get each star, but explores different parts of it during their research. 
In a macro sense, the levels the player can explore open up very quickly, and because the game doesn't require the player to collect every star in order to beat it, they can pick and choose which stars to get. This means that if a player dislikes a level, they can generally skip it entirely. This huge amount of freedom in the route the player takes through the game adds a lot to its replayability. Another thing I want to talk about when it comes to variety is randomization. This is something I've seen crop up over the last few years as mods for different games. My first exposure to this idea is something called Ocarina of Time Beta Quest, which randomizes all of the zone transitions in the Legend of Zelda Ocarina of Time. It uses the player's name when doing this so that different names produce different world connections. This turns the game into something of a treasure hunt, as players search for specific entryways that lead to zones they want to get to, usually so they can claim an important item. This is a type of randomizer that I'll call a navigational randomizer. I've also seen a second type of randomizer, which is an item randomizer. In this type of randomizer, it is items the player can collect that are randomized. The first one of these I saw was one for The Legend of Zelda Majora's Mask. This one was particularly aggressive, such that picking up what looked like a seed drop could result in the player obtaining, say, bombs. I've seen a few others since then for games like Super Metroid and Dark Souls 1. A particular note is the randomizer for The Legend of Zelda A Link to the Past, which supports the randomization of the locations of key items, the ability to shuffle entrances, or both. It uses different modifiers to adjust difficulty, and also has specific logic implemented in coordination with that to allow players of all skill levels to be able to enjoy the experience. This sort of thing is similar in concept to roguelikes and other procedurally generated games, but with more structure. They also inject a sense of newness to something that is otherwise very familiar. While I've mostly seen these in the land of modding, I'm hoping that someday they will become a feature that developers implement. I want to close this section on variety with a word of warning. For variety to work, the player's choices must feel meaningful. If choosing a different thing doesn't result in any appreciable mechanical difference, then the choice will feel meaningless and leave the player feeling disappointed. Something else that can help with the game's replayability is ensuring that the most engaging form of the game is accessible to the player throughout play. The mistake that can often be made in this regard is sacrificing engaging play for creating a logical progression of power through the game. This is something done in service of giving the player time to learn how to play the game bit by bit so that they aren't overwhelmed by a plethora of options at first blush. Another reason this is done is to help reinforce the beats of the story in the game with a mechanical identity that mirrors the growth of the player character's powers. In this scenario, the player is rewarded for progression in the game's narrative, with a broadening of their options for play. There are other ways in which this can manifest, but the important point here is that the player does not have full access to all of their abilities throughout the game, and if they start the game over, they will have to go through much of the game again without all of the abilities they had become used to having by the time they finished it. One way to address this issue is to simply have the player be able to do most of the abilities from the start, with the game teaching the player about the abilities they have access to at an easy-to-learn pace. In this scenario, when the player returns to play through the game again, they will have a whole plethora of new ways to approach the levels they had gone through before, as they have retained the knowledge of how to do all the complex techniques in the game, and can now apply them in the earlier stages to great effect. The Kirby series is a great example of this, with the player gaining knowledge about the different abilities that Kirby can gain throughout, as well as the many nuances of Kirby's basic actions as they go through the game. When the player returns to previous levels, they have new ways to approach them, using not only their new knowledge of core abilities, but also their newfound knowledge of what the copied abilities can do. They can use that knowledge to change the way they approach those earlier levels, finding new paths and new ways to defeat enemies when they replay them. Another way to deal with this is the concept of New Game Plus, 
where the player takes everything they've gained from previous playthroughs with them into the second version of the game that has been altered to account for these abilities. This allows the player to start the game with a fully decked out character, capable of using all the nuances of gameplay to as full a potential as the player can manage. This method of enabling replay of the game allows the player to continue engaging with said game in its most interesting form. Neo is a very good example of this, as this game allows the player to take everything they've earned and learned on the first playthrough back with them for a second run through of the game, where the enemies have had their stats and sometimes even their behaviors altered to match the player character's level. Like entries in the Souls series, it continually ups the ante with each new game plus that the player embarks upon, granting them even more reason to continue leveling up their character as well as improving the tools that they use to play through the game. Yet another way of altering the way the player engages with the game such that the game has more replayability is to allow the player to change the way they access said engaging elements of the game. This can be as simple as allowing the player to play through the game as different characters who are sufficiently unique in their functionality. Many beat-em-ups and scrolling shmups use this method to increase their replayability. The other is to let the game do things to change up recurring scenarios that the player may encounter. This can manifest in having different enemy distributions based on random factors, or having the player's choices at various points of the gameplay affect the layouts and goals of later stages or zones in the game. XCOM is an example of this, where the player's successes and failures can change the nature of the missions they embark on. Combine this with the fact that alien activity, progression of player abilities, and the player's stable of usable units are semi-randomized from playthrough to playthrough, and you get a game that gives the player many reasons to go through it multiple times. An additional element of making a game replayable comes in the form of the way its content is engaged with by the player. By granting the player many varied ways of approaching the same content, they are encouraged to play through that content again. Sonic 1, 2, 3, and Knuckles, along with Mania, are great examples of doing this with level design. In these games, the levels are built such that the player can take multiple paths through them to get to the goal at the end. The paths themselves require the player to use different skills and engage with different set pieces to get through them thus changing the player's experience based on what path they take. It goes deeper, however, as the routes themselves interweave, allowing the player to switch between them at many intervals, thus further changing the experience. Combine this with the fact that each of the individual characters in the game can access different parts through the use of their abilities, and you have a plethora of ways that a player can change their playthrough. The other element of this, which, oddly enough, the original Sonic games also do well, is the concept of packaging your game's content in such a way that a player going through the game normally is unlikely to see all of it, but is encouraged to dig into the game through either multiple playthroughs or extended play to discover that additional content. The Metroid series is a great example of this, as the game is built around the concept of exploration to find new and interesting locales by using power-ups they have discovered in said locales. The design of these games' zones is such that the average starting player will pass by or miss many of the power-ups that could be found if they decided to take a closer look. This combined with the fact that the game tracks how close to 100% power-up acquisition the player is gives them a reason to keep playing through the game to find these other power-ups and abilities. It should be noted that in the Metroid scenario, finding these power-ups is a key element of the game's engagement and as such, the game's zones are designed to make that process of finding the power-ups engaging. The power-ups themselves are non-trivially useful, 
either enhancing the player's ability to play the game successfully or broadening the list of available actions the player has at their disposal. In both cases, the power-ups facilitate further engagement with the game as they enable the player to more consistently survive their searches for new gear. This aspect of progress tracking can also motivate player re-engagement with the content, as this gives the player a verifiable way to track their skill at playing the game and can result in the player challenging themselves to complete the game in new and interesting ways. Speedrunning, high score runs, and other self-imposed challenges can result from a game that has the proper tracking to show the player's performance in some way. This combined with the depth of gameplay that supports a high skill cap greatly encourages the player to replay the game. As a note, achievements fall into this category of game elements that encourage player re-engagement, as they very directly state challenges that the player can attempt to succeed at while playing the game. Depending on how the achievements are done, their existence can be used to give the player inklings as to the full potential that they can achieve through concerted play. These clues can lead to the player engaging with the game for longer periods to discover and explore these hinted-at concepts of high-level play. One final aspect of making a game re-engageable or engageable for extended periods of time is to have it grant a rewarding experience both when the player is at high or low levels of skill. This can be very difficult to do, as it means that the player can enjoy the game at a core level without knowing every individual aspect of how it works, but can also fully appreciate the game later on, when they have mastered all of the extra skills presented in it. A game that did this well was Soul Calibur 2. As a fighter, the game lives and dies by its learning curve, as much of the interest comes from discovering how to play the game at higher and higher levels. Soul Calibur 2 provided an interesting and rewarding play experience at even some of the earliest levels of play, as the structure of its inputs and character design lent itself to the player learning how to play the game as they played it. With mostly simple controls and very visible cues for the traits of attacks, the act of reaching an intermediate level of skill at that game required very little coaching, and could be achieved through explorative play alone. However, there was enough depth of interaction within the game's play to allow for higher level strategic interaction, making play at the master level also engaging and varied. Mechanical replayability is definitely a powerful way of encouraging players to come back to your game time and time again. However, as long as the mechanics don't dissuade players from enjoying your game, Narva's auto elements can also draw players back to it. We're going to look at this from two angles, narrative and environment, where environment encapsulates the idea of a sense of place. Redcoat will talk about this in a bit. The reason we're breaking them up this way is that they function very differently from each other, though they both do focus on the player wanting to re-experience something. So, starting with narrative replayability. Of course, just as with mechanical replayability, you want to try to avoid things that'll push the player away, such as grading characters. Phi from The Legend of Zelda Skyward Sword, for example. But the real focus should be on creating narrative elements that the player will latch onto. This could be a character, a plot arc, the plot as a whole, good luck with that though, that's a toughie, or a particularly powerful scene. The important thing is that the narrative elements the player really remembers are bits that they built a powerful connection to. In other words, you want the player to have a fondness for the parts of your narrative that they find memorable. It is okay if there are boring bits, that can be hard to avoid, as long as those aren't the memorable parts. Though, making boring memorable is something of an accomplishment, narratively speaking. Let me explain some of what I'm talking about by using Tales of Symphonia as an example. As a full disclaimer, I love this game for its narrative. While I find the game systems enjoyable, they aren't so engaging to me that I'd feel a desire to come back to this game. What has inspired me to play it multiple times is the story. 
In general, I'm not overwhelmingly fond of most of the characters. I don't dislike them, but for the most part, the main cast is composed of a fairly cliched set of mostly one-dimensional shonen anime characters that aren't especially memorable, especially compared to a handful of very nuanced and complex side characters. <coughs> Ewan. <coughs> the overall narrative structure, the plot, is fairly interesting, and had the first plot of its kind that I'd experienced, being somewhat more complex than the typical video game plot I'd been used to up to that point. This did result in some memorable moments, but it was the writing of the story that, for me, is truly memorable and powerful. It is the fact that multiple playthroughs allow you to gain a deeper and deeper understanding of the nuances of what is happening that I've gone back to that game many times. Indeed, a powerful memory of mine is from a more recent playthrough of the game, where I fully realized that a conversation that occurs early on is actually about a completely different topic than I had originally thought it was about because of my greater understanding of the overall context. This clever bit of skillful writing sticks in my brain and awes me. It is this sort of narrative that can draw someone back to experience a game when they realize that the full context they now have reframes everything they thought they'd known, which leads to the dawning realization that the only way to truly understand things is to play the game through again, a realization that is met not with despair, but deep anticipation. This is a particularly potent example for me, but you can also create the desire to re-experience other elements of a narrative. I mentioned them previously. Something to consider, for you listeners out there, is what aspects of your favorite book bring you back to it time and time again. Alternatively, if you have a favorite movie, consider what draws you to wanting to rewatch that. Understanding the draws we have to traditional storytelling methods can help us understand what makes a story that people want to re-experience, which is the goal here. There is, however, another way to create replayability in the narrative, which is, once again, variance. There are a couple of ways this can be done. One way is to take the Bioware approach, where player decisions have a strong impact on the narrative, which pushes it in different directions. This can lead to players wanting to experience different outcomes as a result of them making different decisions. Though, when you do this, you do have to make sure that decisions actually are relevant to the plot as much as you can, and also that different decisions result in meaningfully different consequences. Another way of doing this is to vary the perspective rather than the plot. To do this, you'll need some initial mechanisms, such as different characters that allows the player to choose which perspective to experience. Then, you have the plot play out from the chosen point of view. When you do this, it's a good idea to try to make it clear that the other point of view exists and is different. However, doing this allows your player to sort of play detective with your plot, as playing through different perspectives builds up a broader, fuller, more complete picture of what happens. The final idea for a varied storytelling is an organic plot that comes about in a procedural way, something that is derived from a procedurally grown game world. Unfortunately, I don't have any clear examples that I'm aware of that I can point to to demonstrate this concept, except perhaps histories people have written up for 4X games like Civilization. It is a bit of a complicated idea, so I won't dig into it here, but Redcoat and I thought it was worth mentioning. So how about them re-experienceable zones? As noted before, another thing that can draw a player in to re-engage with the game is the environments inside it. In this, we find components of narrative, visual, and audio expression that can be worked upon to present an experience that a player wishes to return to. There are many elements that contribute to this, but we can separate them into a few different overarching ideas. Uniqueness, how commonly a location's type appears, both mechanically and narvazotally. Juxtaposition, the implications of the location's placement, temporally, spatially, and its relationship to other locales. Immersion, how well the location draws the user in and excites their imagination, and readability, what the zone says about its world and characters as well as how it says it. Looking at the concept of uniqueness first, we find an idea that is pretty self-explanatory. 
A player may be more likely to want to revisit a locale if locations that look and feel like it are more rarefied in the game. For example, in a game that features a great deal of washed out locations full of browns and grays, a location with bright greens and blues stands out a great deal, sticking in the player's memory as a point of engagement with the game. If that appearance happens to be supported by an audioscape that is equally unique from the rest of the game, for instance, chirping birds and waterfall sounds in contrast to a heavy metal soundtrack for the rest of the game, the player may feel encouraged to examine the locale again for the simple fact that it sticks out in their memory. This concept goes a step further into the meta space of gaming, as having an awareness of the different types of locales and visual landscapes that are being used within the genre you choose to build your game in can help with building worlds that stand out from the rest of the market. Nintendo's products in general are a pretty good example of this, as they tend to avoid the more desaturated, realistic colorations that appear in most AAA offerings, going for exciting, saturated, bright, and colorful hue sets, granting those games an identity for which they are recognized and remembered. Many games use the uniqueness of visual design to differentiate their levels from each other, choosing specific hues, types of geometry, and elements of gameplay for each locale. By doing this, each individual location provides its own unique experience, allowing them to stick in the mind of the player better than if they were more strictly unified in visual and mechanical design. The unique contrasts that they have with each other serve to highlight each individual world much more effectively than if they were strictly unified. As something of a contrast to uniqueness is the concept of juxtaposition. The idea behind juxtaposition is to take familiar things and recontextualize them so that the experiencer sees them in a new or fresh way. There are a lot of different types of things that fall under a rather broad juxtaposition umbrella. Here are some of the ideas that we could think of. Combining familiar things in an unusual or atypical way. Lost Isolith mixing lava and trees, fire and explosive growth, is an example of this, as normally trees and lava don't go together. Taking something familiar and changing something with it, such as musical styles. Snow-level music tends to have a certain sound, for example. Putting in different types of enemies than would be typically used, etc. In other words, this goes beyond doing your take on a fire level and re-examining what a fire level should even be and feel like in the first place. Putting an element into an atypical place. For example, Mario Galaxy 2 has a stage called Shiverburn Galaxy, which places ice next to lava. Mario needs to navigate the ice without falling into the nearby lava and getting roasted using familiar elements to create a connection with something different. A very good example of what I mean here is Studiopolis Zone in Sonic Mania. Sonic games traditionally have a casino-themed level, with things like bumpers and weird stuff to bounce off of, combined with a nighttime city-themed visual style. Studiopolis takes many of these familiar elements, the city-themed visual style, color palette, music style, and things like bumpers, but, but rather than casting them as a casino, casts them in a glitzy TV-slash-movie studio context. In this way, the level is seemed more off of Hollywood rather than Las Vegas, yet it still has an overall familiar feel. It feels like a relative of the casino-style levels, and it clearly belongs, yet feels new at the same time, using associations to draw out similarities that reinforce a common theme. For example, in Mario 64, the basement worlds all have a dangerous feel. A deadly mine with rolling boulders and poison gas, a desert with sinkholes, lava with more lava, and the dock for Bowser's submarine protected by a whirlpool, sharks and drowning. All of these stages have a lot of environmental hazards that function as instant deaths or very high damage relative to other stages, and they're all grouped together in the basement, which can be associated with darker things. Combining aesthetic elements to create an unusual atmosphere. There are different ways of doing this, many of them focus on creating a dissonance between audio and visual elements. 
For example, using music and sound effects to make a bright city full of people feel creepy and spooky, or using peaceful rest of sounds to make a dark area feel comforting. You can also combine mechanics and Narvazot to this end, by combining mechanical and Narvazotal elements that typically don't interact with each other, or conversely, not using typical mechanic Narvazot pairings. You can also do things that are different from other parts of your game, such as changing the style of music or graphics for a specific area. For example, if your game is often full of bright colors with cheerful music, then sad music with desaturated colors becomes particularly powerful by contrast. This is similar in principle to the fact that different colors look different depending upon what other colors they are paired with. This sort of thing should definitely be done intentionally and can create a very striking mood. I think part of why places like Hyde Star of Flame and Medulla from Dark Souls 2 are so poignant for me is the way they aesthetically contrast heavily with how Souls games overall look in general. This effect is also probably part of why the flowered area near the Curse Rotted Greatwood stands out so much to me, and has a very different aesthetic feel than the rest of the game. It feels far more peaceful to me than everywhere else. A more ephemeral element of re-engageable zone design is the concept of immersion. This is in reference to the idea that a zone or locale excites the imagination of the player, getting them to explore the idea of a locale or zone with their imagination, thus making it feel more real in the process. This is a tricky one to manage, as it means granting the player just enough contextual information through visual, audio, narrative, and experiential means that the zone exists as more than just an area in a video game in the player's mind. Little details that imply that there is a larger world within which the zone is interred greatly help with this aspect, as they grant the user a context within which they can ruminate on the nature of the zone. By doing so, they can connect the dots of the ideas presented by the zone to construct a reality that they can explore the implications of. A great example of doing this appears in Metroid Prime, as the game does a great deal to immerse the player in its setting. However, one of the crowning achievements of immersion that Metroid Prime has is its logbook. This repository of player-gathered information talks about objects, enemies, and organisms in a way that reinforces the reality in which Samus lives, expounding upon details that bring context to the world you're exploring. This context grants the world character, allowing the player another avenue of engagement with the game in the form of discovering the full nature of this world. In this case, the player may find themselves re-engaging with the game just to learn more about the world, see more of it, or simply experience the world's character once more. All this in mind, immersion as a concept lives in the collective implications of the details presented to the player. For instance, ambient noises can help with making the world feel more alive, as the noises cue the player into various minor events that are happening, or little details about the world. The sound of crickets and frogs at night, or cicadas in the summer, grant context and life to the world presented, hinting at the larger existence within which it is placed. Even selective use of a lack of ambient noise can go a long ways towards conveying emotional details of a location by giving the effect of a dead or even sterile environment. Looking back at Metroid Prime, we again see a game that makes expert use of its immersion tools using low electronic thrums, hisses of steam, lonely winds, and even the subtle ambience of being underwater to convey the experience of being inside any given location. Weather-related effects, like fog, rain, or heat ripples, also help with this sense of realism or surrealism, implying things about the warmth or coolness of an area, or even suggesting certain smells to the players. 
Using this in tandem with well-chosen color palettes can go a long ways towards making a zone feel tangibly real or interestingly surreal. Neo makes amazing use of these sorts of effects, combining lighting with visual cues of haze, fog, rain, and some more surreal effects like drifting soul energies and other ambient energies to not only make their worlds feel real, but also to convey some of the heavy oppressive emotions that can come with facing demons and being in the yokai realm. Additionally, props and environmental detail help make a world feel lived in, as they show evidence of other beings doing things in the world. The odd chair or crate shows human or human-like beings exist in a world. Rusted floors and walls imply locales that are old or perhaps in great disrepair. Sprinkling these elements throughout the world while sparing a thought to why they are there and what they imply about the world presented can go a long ways towards granting a zone an immersive feel. The Resident Evil series does a great job of this, utilizing all sorts of details to convey the nature of the different environments that the zombie outbreaks are happening in. Utilizing details such as destroyed bodies, bloodstains, piles of pus, and other inhuman things, amongst more mundane items such as chairs, doors, beds, and modern weapons, the props used in Resident Evil convey a world that is being overtaken by a great inhuman scourge and the seemingly hopeless battle that rages within it. This combination of normal and abnormal objects goes a great way towards reinforcing the horror aspects of those games, grounding enough of it in reality to allow the more outrageous aspects enough credence to garner an uneasy response. When a game is doing its immersion well, everything works together to show the player what it would be like to travel through the imaginary locales presented. This immersion can translate into re-engagement with the world that clings to the player long after their initial playthrough, as they consider the implications of the reality presented to them. This can turn into a desire to dig into the reality further, or to re-experience the feeling of being in that reality. The final concept we want to talk about today with regards to memorable game areas is a sort of readability or symbolic aesthetic appeal. This is where the zone has something to say. It has greater meaning than, we wanted a lava level here. This sort of thing is often best when it is subtle and requires the developer to make the area with a lot of intention. It also isn't necessary to making a zone memorable, but it can certainly work towards that end. It also requires a ton of attention to detail. You have to ask yourself what everything means, why it is there, what message it conveys. At minimum, you have to make sure that you aren't giving contradictory messages. Preferably, everything combines to support the area's message, its meaning. This can sound more philosophical than it has to be. You can strive for some sort of nuanced meaning with deep philosophical overtones, but you can also strive for something straightforward, like communicating the history of the area or the impact of current events. In other words, you can make the area highly symbolic, intending it to communicate some deeper idea of reality, or you can try to reinforce the message of, these game characters' lives suck, this game world sucks to live in. Or conversely, you could communicate to the player that an area is peaceful or has a deep history. I can give you an example of this sort of thing from Guild Wars 1. I'll admit that I may have read into these things more deeply than the developers meant, but death of the author, sometimes, so charging ahead. In Guild Wars 1, the very first game, the tutorial area, what is called by players Pre-Searing Ascalon, I've talked about it before, is destined for destruction. The opening cinematic states it plainly, The last day dawns on the kingdom of Ascalon. It arrives with no fanfare, no tolling of alarms. Those who will remember will speak fondly of the warm morning breeze. People carry on with their daily lives, unaware that in a short while, everything they have ever known will come to an end.
The game does a lot to reinforce this core idea, that it doesn't feel like this day should be Ascalon's last day. It is autumn, which often is a sign of endings, but there are still plenty of trees with green leaves. It is only early autumn. An end may be coming, but it shouldn't be here yet. The music is peaceful. The aesthetics are cozy and warm, inspired by peaceful European villages. Most enemies are passive until you attack them, which further contributes to the overall peaceful feel. The war is on the other side of a Great Wall, not an Ascalon itself. The Narvazod mechanics work together to convey the message. This is a peaceful place, one that has time left. This makes this destruction at the end of the tutorial extremely powerful, especially when contrasted with the far less colorful wasteland with which the player is soon greeted. Doing these sorts of things that subconsciously convey a message can add a lot of potency to the things you are trying to do with your game. They also can enhance a number of other areas. We have talked about some of these in previous podcasts, things such as increasing emotional engagement and impact. Speaking of death of the author, your game worlds will always have something to say, whether you intend for them to speak or not. While most players won't be consciously listening, they will all still listen. If your game has any narrative focus to it, it behooves you to ensure your levels are conveying the message you once said. So that about finishes our examination of the concept of replayability when it comes to games. To sum it up, replayability comes from a variety of factors within your game's design and is, at the end of the day, wrapped up in the finer details of your product's construction, implementation, and execution. The most important thing you can do when considering this aspect of your game's design is to consider the intricate details that comprise it, and ask yourself why they are there, and if they are interesting. As a final thought, not all games need to strive for maximizing replayability, and indeed certain types of games, especially certain types of puzzle-oriented ones, often don't lend themselves well to it. Be intentional, and understand what sort of game you are making. And, as always, pre-planning can help a lot. And with that, until next time, CNTR, signing off. And this is Redco, signing off. Play the games you want to play, boyos.